Welcome to Gray Matters, where we unpack how medical management is rarely black or white. And we go on deep dives along the way. I'm Jason Freed, a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm Allie Trainer, a pulmonary and critical care attending at Mount Auburn Hospital. And today we're also joined by our friend and colleague, Dr. Emily Citrone. Hi, I'm a geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. You know, Emily, I bet as a geriatrician, you have some experience working in gray areas. I definitely do. But, you know, there is still one case that just really stood out to me. It's a particularly challenging case of heart failure. And this patient actually lives at the nursing home where I work, and I've just learned a ton along the way. Can you tell us about meeting your patient? Sure. She was 91 years old, and I initially admitted her for rehab after a heart failure hospitalization, where she was found to have a newly reduced ejection fraction. She was discharged on an aspirin, a statin, carvedilol, spironolactone, losartan, empagliflozin, and Lasix, which were all new. Prior to this admission, she actually didn't even take a single medication. Man, that sounds like a ton of new meds. But I was actually just listening to the Core IM5 Pearls episode on GDMT for heart failure, and they delved into the strong HF trial, which showed that it's safe and I think actually better to just get all these meds on early. So it's a lot, but it makes sense, right? Yeah, maybe we can play a sample from that episode and remind ourselves what the strong HF trial found. The investigators did is they said, let's compare usual care to GDMT initiation. And this was a multinational trial. Or let's randomize patients to a very aggressive protocolized approach to GDMT initiation and titration. And what they said is that they wanted by two weeks, patients who were discharged with a diagnosis of heart failure from the hospital to be on full dose GDMT. As the punchline, what the investigators found is that looking at 180 days, the rate of heart failure readmissions and mortality as a combined outcome was lower. It was also really impressive about the studies that if you look towards 90 days, to see which patients or how many patients were actually on full dose GDMT, you'll find somewhere between the 40s to 50s percent mark at about two weeks, people were on full dose beta blockers, full dose ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Uh, whereas by contrast, people who were randomized to usual care, we're talking about 5% or less. So that really informs us that we're pretty bad at getting people onto full dose GDMT therapy. Okay. So takeaway from Dr. Eugene Yerditsky is for the most part, it's safe and reasonable for patients to have been started on all these meds while they're admitted. And it sounds like compared with the usual standard of care, patients were often getting undertreated with these life-saving medications. Right. And, you know, for someone who was robust and independent, I probably wouldn't have thought that much more about it. But with the frail 91-year-old that was actually in front of me, it did give me pause. Yeah, did you have other concerns about her? Well, it turns out she was actually declining at home. Her family was reporting some cognitive impairment. She couldn't do some of the things she used to be able to do. So we felt pretty sure she had dementia. I see how this is getting more complicated than just heart failure. <laughs> yep, exactly. And on top of that, her, our communication with her was really challenging. She spoke a less common dialect of Chinese, and we didn't have an interpreter readily available to us. And her family wasn't always available either. Okay, so she's got new heart failure, likely dementia. You can't communicate with her. She's on seven new meds, and now she's coming to rehab. Yep. And, you know, she did seem very stable, but she'd only been on all these medications for a couple of days. So even though we know the data on GDMT, I did wonder if applying it to this patient would be any different. 
which led me to our deep dive one. You know, how should we be approaching GDMT in this frail 91-year-old with likely dementia? How do we balance the greater risk of possible side effects with any potential benefit? We know how to treat advanced heart failure in someone that's 50 years old without a lot of other comorbidities. Uh, but then thinking about how do we do that in someone that is quite comorbid, advanced age, and then has all these other um, communication difficulties and family and social issues going on, uh, it gets much more uh, cloudy uh, in terms of knowing what is the best way to treat these people. That's Dr. Adam Moskowitz, a geriatric cardiologist at UNC. So, you know, let's go back to strong HF. So they did include patients up to the age of 85, but the average age was still only 62, and it didn't include any patients in their 90s. Okay, good to know. But also, why does age even matter? I mean, we've all taken care of patients in their 80s, 90s, they're independent, taking care of loved ones. I mean, even running marathons. Definitely. But putting my geriatrics hat on, you know, even those 90-year-olds running marathons still have physiologic differences that are part of normal aging, especially when you think about the effects of medications. And then it gets even more important when you start to think about frailty, which is not a part of normal aging. And I bet frailty is not mentioned in these trials. Yeah, it makes you wonder what we would see if we did have studies on patients who are frail. You know, remember, this is still a 91-year-old female with dementia, and so then it gets a lot more muddy. Um, and that complexity is where I like to live as a clinician. These patients live outside of the guidelines. Um, and so uh, that is really when you get to hone in and make a truly individualized decision, and you get to be really patient-centered. And I think that probably the best way to do it, depending on other factors, is probably somewhat stepwise approach. Uh, but we get in a big hurry to start and stop medicines. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's not the right thing to do. And so making sure that we're kind of putting it all into context is what I really love about these uh, types of cases and these types of patients. And so in general, the way I think about it is first, it's a class effect. So if you can get someone on even just a little bit of all of the classes of GDMT, beta blocker, ACE ARB or ARNI, spironolactone, or some type of ARB, um, uh, SGLT2 inhibitor. If they can tolerate all of those, I slowly start them over a couple of months. And the way that I typically see when I see patients in clinic and talk to them about it is, is that I tell them that for the next few months, we're going to be seeing each other very frequently. And we're also going to be monitoring labs quite frequently. And that's distressing for people. You know, it's a lot of doctor's visits, a lot of medicines, it's a lot of labs. Yeah. So important to set that expectation that we're going to be working hard to find that sweet spot for these patients. But that brings up for me something that, you know, often makes me hem and haw a bit on rounds, which is if we're worried about starting them all at once, how do we choose which one to start with? Like, what does this actually look like in practice? It sort of depends. And some of it kind of depends to me on what they presented with. Um, you know, because if they presented, per, let's say if they presented with AFib with RVR and you thought that tachycardia was really a big trigger for the cardiomyopathy, then I would tend to favor more nodal blocking, more rate controlling agents as well whenever, you know, you feel like it's safe to initiate those. Um, as opposed to if they presented just with 
you know, um, pulmonary edema, volume overload type symptoms, you know, depending on their blood pressure at baseline, that may be someone that benefits more from like an acute afterload reduction, something like in, you know, uh, an ACE ARB or an Entresto type medicine, spironolactone. Um, I tend to initiate the hemodynamic, the medicines with better hemodynamic effects, meaning the afterload reductions, the vasodilators, things like that. This was such a great learning point for me because sometimes, you know, I'll get an echo in my inbox and it has a newly reduced EF. And honestly, it can feel really arbitrary of which GDMT to start. It sounds like for this patient who had never mentioned chest pain, has no arrhythmia, maybe the beta blocker is not as key to get on board early. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And then another way to think about it is which side effect they could tolerate more. Totally. I mean, I have had my fair share of older or frail patients who were started on beta blockers who frankly just felt like crap or became pretty orthostatic. I love beta blockers. I'm a cardiologist. Um, but I do find that especially in older patients that they tend to produce a lot of adverse effects. So a lot of orthostasis, a lot of fatigue, um, and, and just, you know, and so I do find that they tend to be poorly tolerated in older adults. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try, but they're not, this is not the person that I'm going to try to titrate up to 200 milligrams of metoprolol because quite frankly, she's not going to tolerate that very well. You know, this makes me think a lot about this concept of homeostenosis. This idea that as you get older, the range for homeostasis gets more narrow, it gets stenotic. And so patients, they have a narrow range for their blood pressure, kidney function, things like that. And shout out to one of our off-air producers, Dr. Aaron Troy, who brought up how beta adrenal receptor sensitivity decreases physiologically with age. So it's almost like they have some intrinsic beta blockade, which increases the risk for orthostasis. Right. But to emphasize, these challenges don't mean the medications can't work in terms of fewer heart failure readmissions or mortality. So it's still worth a shot getting at least small doses of GDMT on board, even beta blockers. It can just take a lot longer. And, you know, it's such a good point, but it feels so hard because we know that each of these medications can have such benefits. So I just can't get rid of that part of me that feels like it's so wrong to have any of them missing. And I think that everyone should give themselves some grace. You know, we know what the appropriate medicines are. We know congestive heart failure is an interesting scenario because it's, you know, we know that there's these four to six medicines that really work synergistically together and to help improve or stabilize cardiac function. And so we can get very laser focused on that with, and then we can sometimes can forget to take care of the patient that's in front of us. Um, and so um, I think that it's important to remember that it's not target doses of GDMT. It is maximally tolerated doses of GDMT. And that can be different for every patient. I love that reminder that it's maximally tolerated GDMT. So we already talked about beta blockers in older patients. How do we think about other GDMT to prioritize? Yeah, so I think one example is that if you have a patient who's on a diuretic and getting potassium supplements, maybe try prioritizing the spironolactone. It's potassium sparing, and then we can see if we can minimize some polypharmacy. And then, you know, if there's still blood pressure and potassium room, it's probably better to favor that ARB or ARNI over an ACE inhibitor, since we know that ACEs can cause cough, and then we don't have to worry about the risk of angioedema. Yeah, and then with the SGLT2 inhibitor, that's a really good one if the blood pressure is on the lower side because it doesn't affect blood pressure as much as the other GDMT. So if I can try and summarize deep dive one, my takeaway is we're trying to find the sweet spot of maximally tolerated GDMT because we know it has proven benefit for heart failure, readmission, and mortality and get as many classes of medications on board. 
And then in terms of which ones to prioritize, particularly in our patients that fall outside table one from these guidelines, we want to think about what might have led to their heart failure in the first place and what side effects we might see. Just a quick word from our sponsor, Echinos, the maker of the ultra-portable Cosmos point-of-care ultrasound solution. I am so excited that Cosmos is out there redefining point-of-care ultrasound. Oftentimes with technology, we find ourselves compromising quality with affordability. But Cosmos is changing all of that. Think cutting-edge technology meets affordability. The image quality and capabilities are comparable to what you'd get with a $50,000 cart ultrasound. But this is much simpler to use and at a fraction of the cost. Best of all, Cosmos integrates AI. And they've even studied this. At Stanford, novice users, with the help of Cosmos AI, achieved faster scan times, higher image quality, and more accurate diagnoses. Another study found that novice users using Cosmos AI were able to get ejection fraction estimates similar to that with formal echo reads. It's so cool to think that Cosmos AI is bringing echo-level diagnosis to the bedside. Our patients no longer have to wait days for that echo to happen. There are multiple configurations, including two options that come with an iPad, so it's easy to get started right out of the box. With Cosmos, you're not just investing in a device, you're investing in the future of healthcare and transforming patient care. Visit coreimpodcast.com backslash Echinos to learn more and schedule a demo. Mention Corian Podcast during your demo, and they will include a free AI application of your choice with any device purchase. That's coriampodcast.com backslash E-C-H-O-N-O-U-S. We'll link it in our show notes. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Wait, so Emily, going back to your patient, she was actually doing okay with all of these medications, right? And I think she was going to be going back to her PCP and cardiologist for ongoing management. That's true. And she was also doing well with therapy, but she was reaching her last covered rehab day for Medicare. And this is where things actually started to get even trickier. We tried to start discharge planning, but no one could get in touch with her family. Man, so were you able to get in touch with anyone? Well, eventually. It took weeks, but we got a hold of the daughter-in-law who told us that not only could the patient not go back and live with them, but they also didn't want to be involved in her care at all. So she had no one. She had other children living in a different state, but none of them were willing to take on her care either. Man, that is heartbreaking. Ugh, yeah. And on top of that, we think she likely has dementia, and I'm guessing you're probably still unable to successfully communicate with her. Right. And she had no prior documents detailing her wishes either. So it was really hard. I mean, what were we going to do? No family, no advanced directives. But then, as it usually happens... Uh-oh. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it was late Friday afternoon, of course, and her potassium came back at 7.5. Yikes. Yep. So we admitted her to our inpatient geriatric service. She also had a pretty severe AKI. Oh, man. How did she end up doing? Well, medically, she did okay. Her kidneys and potassium, they improved pretty quickly. But, you know, the hospital stay was hard on her in other ways. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm guessing with a new environment, communication challenges, no family. She probably ended up with some pretty bad delirium. Yeah. I mean, gosh, at the nursing home, even with all the communication challenges and dementia, you could tell she just was this really vibrant woman. She was always smiling and would, you know, do this little dance move with her hands. But when she came back, she was confused and withdrawn and even quite upset at times. Hmm. That must have been so upsetting to see such a big change. It was so hard to see. 
But, you know, even with that, there was also something that had been weighing on me ever since I saw that potassium of 7.5. What if she had coded from that? Oof. She's still full code? Yeah. No one had previously ever had that conversation with her, and her family hadn't wanted to engage in it either. And so at this point, she was what we call an unbefriended older adult. Like that is an actual real term that exists in the literature? It is. An unbefriended older adult lacks decisional capacity, doesn't have a pre-existing advanced directive, and doesn't have any family, friends, or a legally authorized surrogate to assist with decisions. Man, that is so hard and so sad. So then what do we even do in this situation? What do we do about our code status? That's a great question. And at least the next step felt somewhat clear to us. We felt that she needed a guardian. I mean, she's 91 with dementia, has no family, has not appointed a power of attorney, and we're worried about her potentially coding. Yeah, I, I think most of us would probably agree. It sounds like she does need a guardian. But, you know, I see this come up in other situations. And there seems to be a lot of confusion, lack of clarity in other cases about who needs a guardian. So for Deep Dive 2, you know, can we take a look more into who actually needs a guardian and what is that process actually like? Whenever I'm thinking of guardianship, I'm thinking of it as a last resort kind of thing. You kind of have to remember that there's only two ways in our society where you can be denied most of the rights that you would otherwise have. And one of them is to be incarcerated. And another is to be deemed incompetent and be a given a guardian. You lose almost all of your rights. That's Brian Godfrey, a social worker with UNC Geriatrics. So there may be clever ways around it where we solve the problem without having to go through the whole legal process. Can we solve it with a healthcare power of attorney? Can we solve it with a behavioral change or a systemic change? And that would be the ideal situation. Try to identify the specific problem we're facing try every non-guardian way we can to solve this problem. And if we still can't solve it, that's when we bring in a guardian. That makes sense. I can think of a lot of patients who fall into this category and don't have capacity for certain decisions. And we can invoke a power of attorney or, you know, it's sometimes called a healthcare proxy for things like procedures, chemotherapy, most medical decisions. But what about in your patient who has dementia and she doesn't have a healthcare proxy. Right. It's a little different because, you know, we weren't only concerned about certain days, like if she were delirious, and it wasn't only certain decisions. We were really concerned about her competence. And so since she didn't have a healthcare proxy, for her, we really needed a guardian. Okay. I get why your patient needs a guardian, but I'm a little confused. Can we go back? Because like, it sounds like we're saying if someone is incompetent, but has a healthcare proxy, sometimes they still need a guardian. Like, why would someone need a guardian if they have a family member who's their healthcare proxy? Yeah, I mean, that's a great and difficult question. So I can tell you about a different resident at the nursing home with me, and I think it sort of illustrates that point. So this patient also had dementia, but he had no awareness of any of his deficits. He thought he was fully capable of being independent and really wanted to still make all of his own decisions. But some of those decisions were really putting him in harm's way. For example, you know, prior to this, he had never done any online gambling, but now he was going online and putting himself at risk of losing tens of thousands of dollars. And he used to be really great about taking his daily medications. He thought they were so important. But then he started to have these episodes where he missed medications and he would double up on others, but didn't want any help from anybody. So even though his son was his officially appointed healthcare proxy, he still petitioned for guardianship because he felt like that was needed in order to really protect his father's health and finances. So 
It seems like if I'm understanding this correctly, a guardian is only needed to be appointed if it's contentious. So like if the patient is incompetent and is making unsafe decisions for themselves without understanding the risks, and they're going against the healthcare proxy's recommendations and you know the healthcare proxy is really just acting in their best interest, then they'll need guardianship. But if the patient doesn't have capacity and they're likely not competent, but they're going along with the recommendations of the healthcare proxy and the healthcare proxy is using sound judgment, then in that case, we can just leave it. Yeah, that's a really good summary. And, you know, that latter example is by far most of my patients with dementia. Okay, so then what? Like, what is the process for obtaining guardianship for the small number of people who need it? And it's really complicated, as most things are, especially when the law is involved. You go down to the magistrate's office and file a motion for guardianship. And there's a fee for it. It's like, I don't know, 100 bucks, a couple hundred bucks. And you have to fill out a fairly complicated form and sign off and say, this is what's happened to them. And this is why they need someone else to step in and manage things for them. And you try to be as detailed as you can. You try to present whatever evidence you can when you file the petition. And during the several weeks while this whole process is taking place, what do you do with the patient in front of you? Well, that's the part that felt so distressing to me. I really felt alone, I guess I would say, while this we were waiting on this court date and we were waiting for this whole guardianship process. Guess it felt like all the decisions were on your shoulders? Yeah, it really did. But at least day to day, she did seem happy. You know, she would join for beach ball, volleyball and getting her nails and hair done. She also would love to do these little dance moves with her hands and give big hugs. That's so beautiful. I love that. Yeah, I, I do too. But there was still a lot that felt uncomfortable. Like I couldn't change her code status without a guardian. And I was also needing to make all these decisions for her on a daily basis when I didn't know anything about her. We know they don't have capacity. We're pretty sure they don't have competence. But the, the process is still in the works. There's no healthcare power of attorney. What do we do? And I, I honestly think the the answer ideally would be, well, let's postpone this until we have a clear legal you know, representative to tell us what's okay and what's not. But if it can't be postponed, then I, I would assume that the answer would be the attending decides. And you document very well, you know, this is what I considered and this is what I decided. This is why. Here's who I tried to reach out to. This didn't work. If we're ever making a difficult decision, I will document. I reached out to this social worker. And they agreed that the standard of care should be this or, you know, uh, that a reasonable person would want this. And I do think that adds to the weight of your decision to say this wasn't just me in my own head deciding. I actually sought consult and these people agree with me that this is what needed to happen. You know, that was really helpful for me to hear because I actually was having a lot of informal conversations with people I worked with about what the best approach was, what should I do, and I just didn't realize that it really was part of this whole process. And then I maybe I wasn't as alone just making these decisions. Yeah, I think it's always reassuring to know you're not just puppet mastering alone, and it's helpful to know that it's valid to document it. Okay, so moving on. So the court hearing happens, then who actually gets appointed as the guardian? We're talking about signing over all of someone's rights to another person. And that may or may not be someone they even know. I mean, if it's family, that's one thing, right? But a lot of times it's a social worker from, you know, a DSS. It's, a, it's an adult protective services social worker, like in Orange County. That's what they use, for example. Sometimes it's a lawyer. Sometimes it's someone who works for the county. And some of them will be subcontracted to companies that are professional guardianship and case management companies. 
Well, so most of the time, these guardians are people who don't know the patient. They may or may not have a medical background. And they're not there with you in the hospital or nursing home or clinic. They're like this invisible external force that now you need to involve with decision making. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're the one making the decision, but your patient is in front of you. So how do you continue to make patient-centered decisions when oftentimes the guardian is someone who's court-appointed and doesn't know the patient on an individual level? There is a push to involve people in decision-making as much as possible. It's great to communicate with this guardian, assuming they're doing the right thing. But what about the patient? Like, are we still involving them? Yes. (laughs) The goal, the gold standard is to involve them in every decision insofar as they are able to participate. So, Emily, you have a guardian. You're trying to involve the patient despite the communication barriers. Do you now have a sense of relief that you were looking for? Like, you're not having to make all these decisions alone? Honestly, not as much as I was hoping for. So, yeah, she had this guardian, but it actually still felt like I was the one making every decision, even though then I would, of course, call the guardian and give them a regular update. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel in the ICU with my guardian interactions, where aside from major decisions, I'm just doing my best to make what seems like the most appropriate medical decision. And then I'll call the guardian after the fact to give them the update. Yeah, I guess we still make most of the medical decisions. I guess it's those value sensitive decisions, like would they want chemotherapy that has a fair number of side effects and a not great chance of response? That Those are the ones we involve the guardian for. Um, Exactly. But then the other part that was actually challenging and not quite the relief I was expecting is that changing her code status turned out to not be that simple. Let's say someone has a guardian and you're trying to make an important decision like changing their code status. Why would that take so long? Well, it's kind of by design. They don't want the guardian to just suddenly make major decisions in a person's healthcare with no consult, with no time to think about it with no time to react and catch it if they're behaving inappropriately. So they purposefully build in some stops into the system. One of them is they have to go to the judge and say, hey, this is the plan I'm hoping to make in their care. Would you sign off on it? You know, it's like a, it's a check and balance system. And then the, the judge will look at it and say yes or no. But it, the other side of that, of course, is that now, much like doctors getting my chart messages, You've got these judges getting stacks and stacks of, can they change to this facility? Can they go DNR? And the judge doesn't know these people. And now they've got to do the chart review and they've got to decide. And then they're legally responsible for that decision. Yeah, it's a big deal. Hearing that just makes me so angry. I get why the system is there to protect people, of course. But as an ICU doctor, when people are languishing on event, which I don't know, maybe that's a Massachusetts thing, but we have these patients just languishing, waiting for a guardian who doesn't know them to have a hearing with a judge who doesn't know them so that they can decide if I can do the medically appropriate thing for the patient in front of me and not have the person be resuscitated and intubated. It it makes my blood boil. Yeah, like that is so frustrating. And I mean, the guardian system is clearly far from perfect. I should also mention that some of this is very state dependent, which is another problem in of itself. Hmm. Okay, that's just making me wonder what state can I move to that the guardianship process is faster? Yeah, this is frustrating from multiple angles. I mean, I see the idealistic side of it, which is that it takes a while and there are checks and balances for a reason in order to protect vulnerable people who can't protect themselves. On the other hand, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the oversight 
is sometimes less than perfect. As the Guardian, you're supposed to keep records of everything that you do, every penny of their money that you spend, every decision you make, you're supposed to keep a record of. And then you, I believe you actually submit that and it's reviewed on a regular basis. But at minimum, it would be something that if, if anybody like the judge requested it, that you would be required to send it to them to prove that you're doing what you said you would be doing. I think when it comes down to the practicality of it, like how much is this actually enforced? Do they actually check? Even if you send it to them, do they actually open the file and read through it and check every line? I don't know. But I know what the critics are saying is no, that there's virtually no oversight in this system at all. And it should be shut down because of that. Wow. All this is sounding pretty grim. But I guess it's the system that we have. So I do think it's been helpful to just be aware of all the different aspects at play. Yeah. And I guess I wonder, like, is there another good alternative? Is there like another country that's figured this out? Or is this like what Winston Churchill said about democracy, that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones we've tried? <laughs> yeah, seriously, listeners from other countries, let us know what other processes are there out there. So to summarize what we learned about guardianship, it's a process that is put in place if someone does not have an appointed power of attorney or a healthcare proxy and globally lacks competency. It can be a lengthy process of paperwork and to get a court date. If there isn't a family member who can be a guardian, the appointed person could be a lawyer, social worker, or even someone from a guardianship agency. And we still try our best to make patient-centered decisions involving the patient as much as possible and suggesting what may be most reasonable. But keep in mind that bigger decisions like code status or facility changes may still have to go beyond the patient and the guardian and back to the judge. Yeah, I think maybe another huge takeaway is to get more of my patients to have healthcare proxy or a power of attorney officially documented. I mean, heck, I'm bringing power of attorney forms to my next family party. I mean, everyone needs to do this. I mean, sure, there might be good guardians out there, but if we can get documented power of attorneys, we could really avoid some of this. Okay, so bringing it back to your patient, now you have guardianship. You're working on code status. You're also trying to manage her acute medical issues, by the way, uh, mainly her heart failure. And if I remember where we were, she was just discharged off of all of her GDMT because of the hyperkalemia and renal failure. So, like, what are you going to restart? Yeah, that's a great question and exactly what I was wondering. But also, she got a repeat echo that showed her EF had improved from 20 to 50%. Man, that is amazing. Aggressive GDMT fulfilling its promise, even in a frail 91-year-old. Exactly. It was awesome the GDMT worked. But on the other hand, you know, I was worried. Did those same medications lead her to be hospitalized where she had pretty bad delirium? So I really wasn't sure what to do about adding back medications at this point. Mm. Yeah, I see why you brought this case to, the, to Gray Matters. Um, so it sounds like we should do our third deep dive here. So how should we reevaluate GDMT in a frail elder? What do you start and stop, especially after someone had an adverse event? We don't really know. Did she get better because she was going to get better on her own and this was somewhat acute heart failure and somewhat self-limited? Or did she get better because of the afterload reduction, because of the neurohormonal effects of the medications? But... <laughs> I feel like we should restart something so her EF doesn't go back to 20%. I mean, I guess she could have had stress-induced cardiomyopathy or something else that would have recovered, but I feel like we need to find a sweet spot to keep her out of the hospital. Yeah, agreed. We know that GDMT decreases heart failure hospitalization. 
And that's a pretty patient-centered outcome, especially considering that her last hospitalization made her delirious and not like herself. So, Emily, how are we going to go about reevaluating each of these medicines? Well, I mean, I felt like I was starting all over again, and that felt pretty overwhelming. But even though I couldn't have an actual what matters most conversation with her, I could assume a few things, you know, that she didn't want to be short of breath when she was trying to dance or sleep or too tired. I could probably go as far and say that she doesn't want to go back to the hospital. So I did think there was benefit in trying to get her back on these medications, even with the possible risks. It may be a little bit of an educated trial and error a little bit because it's, you know, when we don't know how these seven medications interact within people or within one specific person, especially in the background of other comorbidities and other medications. Um, and so it can be different. But I tend to think for people with congestive heart failure that are more interested in symptom control, more interested in palliative-based metrics, that the diuretics obviously are going to be top of the list in terms of managing congestion and volume overload. But then also making sure that we're avoiding hypertension, making sure that we're doing everything we can to promote um, better cardiac output with some of these afterload-reducing medicines are going to still benefit from a symptomatic standpoint as long as we're not getting to the point where it's causing adverse effects, because adverse effects is what has landed her in the hospital a couple different times now. And so I would that would be my first priority is avoiding adverse effects and treating the problem that we have, not the problem that we might get in this situation that would be worsening heart failure once again. Okay, so Emily, what'd you end up doing? So her blood pressures were persistently elevated. So I ended up prioritizing the ARB. And thankfully, this time there was no hyperkalemia. I then tried to add some spinal lactone, but her potassium started to creep back up. So I ended up just stopping that. And in the end, I felt like she didn't really need the diuretic. So honestly, at this point, I've just let things be for now. The more we talk about this case and the more I kind of think about it and hear about it is that my assumption is if I was taking care of this patient, that with all the difficulties that we have going on, my goal is to not harm this person. So if she's not actively having symptoms or showing early signs of deterioration, I'm going to try to keep the ship where it is rather than attempting to titrate medicines. And certainly if she's hypertensive, volume overloaded, tachycardic, I'm going to react to those manners in the traditional ways that we would. But if she's doing okay, I'm going to allow that to be okay and do my best not to expose her to any additional risk on the basis of interventions that are really not, she's not really within the guidelines for most of those interventions. It doesn't mean that we can't consider them and offer them, but in this context, it feels like that you might be risking harm more than benefit. And she is doing okay for the most part. She seems to have no shortness of breath or chest pain. We got a court-appointed guardian, and she now has a DNR, DNI. We've also been able to keep her out of the hospital, and her blood pressures have been good. Her potassium has stayed normal. Wow. Seems like you're in a really good spot. We are, but it still feels uncomfortable because I know at some point she's not going to be okay anymore, and I'm worried about her getting admitted either for heart failure or another adverse event, and I know how scary and overwhelming that all will be for her. I still wish I could have an actual goals of care conversation with her. What specifically do you feel like you want to talk about with her? Like what's so uncomfortable for you in this gray space? I think it's that I was really hopeful that once I got the guardian, it would be okay. I can finally relax where they're almost like a family member that I can bounce every decision off of. But that really hasn't been the case. I mean, it, it, it'll be valuable for big decisions, but in reality, 
the day-to-day still feels on me and I need to decide what is best for her. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see why this is hard. I'm now realizing I didn't appreciate this thing that I have all the time with my patients when I see them. So like I'm seeing someone for MGUS, I've been following them for years. It hasn't changed. And I say, you know, maybe you don't need to keep getting labs anymore. And then I get to see their reaction and see them be like, yeah, that makes sense. I do want less labs. I want less appointments. And I get that affirmation. So like, I'm not expecting them to make the medical decision, but they get to tell me, yeah, that fits with my goals or actually, no, that doesn't fit. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate hearing that experience and perspective because I know that adjusting doses of Olmosartan and deciding how often to get labs are not these major decisions. But it's hard to not ever get any of that feedback from her. Of course. I mean, it's so much easier when you have a patient who can just tell you straight, I hate peeing so much. Or, Man, that beta blocker made me feel so woozy. But she can't always do that. So what are you supposed to do here? Such a great question, because I feel like as doctors, we often gravitate towards metrics that we know how to titrate around, like blood pressure. But I mean, patient-centered ones matter too. I mean, probably more. So what do you do here, though, when it's really hard to get a sense of those patient-centered factors? Like when she can't tell you, yes, I'm breathing better since you started that medicine last week. I mean, it's such a great question and something I'm really still working on. I do think in reflecting on all of this, though, is that one of the really beautiful things about working in a nursing home is that it is like an ongoing home visit. So I can get those extra patient-centered data points. You know, even on days I don't have an appointment with her, I still see her in the hall or I can pop into her room for a hug or even a quick dance with her hands. And after after almost two years, you know, I do feel like I know her well enough to at least get a sense of how well she is doing. That is so cool that you get to titrate to how happy she looks on a semi-weekly basis. Like Allie and I cannot do that in all pulmonary and hematology clinics. That's a really good point. I do feel pretty lucky about that. So I guess I'm trying to think about how to globally reflect on this case, because I feel like it'd be so easy to paint this case as a tragedy. This patient has no family. She's in a nursing home with dementia. She's got new heart failure. She's got a court-appointed guardian. But now that we've talked about it so much, I feel like I'm thinking about it differently. Like, she's living her life surrounded by people. She's doing things that she enjoys, like dancing. She's not limited by shortness of breath or chest pain. You know, I didn't really see it that way when we first started. But after months of going through this case with you guys, I really appreciate that perspective. And I think you're right. So even though a lot of this still remains gray, let's recap some of our learning points. In deep dive one, we learned that even though frail older patients are not perfectly captured by the trials, it is still worth attempting GDMT. It just may take a little longer and you have to be even more watchful of side effects. In Deep Drive 2, we learned about guardianship, which is something that may be sought out when there is concern about competence and there isn't a healthcare proxy, or there is a healthcare proxy, but the patient is making unsafe decisions for themselves without the capacity to do so. And even with a guardian, our goal is to still involve the patient as much as possible. It's also important to mention that there are state-specific policies around guardianship that affect the scope of their decision-making. And finally, in Deep Dive 3, we discussed that although most of the time with heart failure with improved ejection fraction, the goal is to keep as many of these life-saving medications on board as possible. In certain cases, especially with frail patients, it is okay to think about patient-centered outcomes and palliative-based metrics and okay to go slowly and monitor for changes. 
And that is a wrap for today. If you want to learn more about the guardianship process, check out our YouTube channel, where we link more of the interview with our expert social worker, Brian Godfrey. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you have a case you'd like to bring on air, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Thank you, Ariella Kohler-Riley, for the accompanying graphic. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.